Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. New Scientist Weekly is brought to you in partnership with the Financial Times. The FT brings you stories that matter, not only in the world of business and finance, but also covering stories in science, technology, climate change and more. Find out more at ft.com. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm podcast editor at New Scientist. And I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist News Editor. Joining us in the pod today is New Scientist reporter Claire Wilson and Deputy News Editor Jacob Aaron. We've also got a special guest, vaccine scientist Katrina Pollock from Imperial College London. Katrina is going to be telling us about the state of vaccine development for the coronavirus and she's going to talk a bit about the symptoms of the disease and, and lots of other things that we think of to ask her on the way. But we've also got a story about treating human organs outside of the body and we're going back to the early years of the universe where something odd has been discovered about neutrinos. But first, a a quick update on the latest with the coronavirus. Um, As of this morning, 12th of March, there have been over 126,000 confirmed cases worldwide and the deaths are above 4,600. Yesterday afternoon, the WHO declared that this is a pandemic, or they are now calling it a pandemic. Um, And in that announcement, they noted that some countries don't really seem to have the resources or the resolve to fight the outbreak quite as well as, as perhaps they could be. The director general himself described um, alarming levels of spread and severity. So that's the latest from the WHO. Uh, There were quite a few graphs circulating this morning, sort of tracking the spread um, in in various countries. And it looks like the UK, France and Germany are, are following a similar trajectory to Italy, maybe five to ten days behind, depending on on whether people have got those projections right. As we know, it's a really serious situation in Italy at the moment, and we're waiting to see what measures governments in in the UK and and other countries will or won't take to try to change that path. And probably worth noting as well that there's a lot of misinformation uh, uh, going around on social media, WhatsApp groups and Facebook at the moment. And because it's such a fast-moving situation, really you do want to be uh, checking it in every day with reputable news outlets, newscientist.com, among others, just to keep up to date with what's going on there. But now let's bring in Katrina. Katrina, you work on vaccine development at Imperial College London, and your background is in immune therapy, especially around HIV. So while we've got you, we'd like to ask you a bit about both vaccines um, and also the immune system with respect to the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Sure. Great. Thanks for having me. Uh, so where are we when it comes to vaccine development for COVID-19 at the moment? There are several groups working on this uh, globally, including two in the UK, which is great news because it means that the chances of finding a vaccine that's safe and effective uh, and that will be successful in tackling this disease are much increased and also that we can do this in a timely fashion. 
And what's been different about uh, this time around in terms of vaccine development is that we've got advances in molecular techniques, which means that the approach to vaccine design has been hugely accelerated. So if you compare that to what was happening in the 20th century when they're dealing with public health emergencies, uh, the vaccinologists of the time had to isolate and grow the pathogen, which was slow and painstaking work, and they had to overcome huge challenges. And now a virus can be isolated and its genetic sequence identified and published in one part of the world, which happened in China. And then within weeks, you can have a candidate vaccine designed somewhere else, including in the UK. And this is nothing short of a revolution in vaccinology. Is this the first time that we've really seen that come into play then? There's been a lot of published work, obviously, but uh, this time people are really trying to do that for real. And certainly our group uh, are using self-amplifying RNA, which has provided speed. And uh, we were able to go from the published sequence of the virus to identifying the part of the sequence that was important and then making them required modifications and then generating a prototype vaccine. So doing all of that work in just two weeks. Wow. And, and so once you've done that, what, what are the next steps so the next steps are where the time really needs to be taken. And what uh, what's happening at the moment um, with uh, our groups and also with other groups around the world, as I understand it, is preclinical testing. And that's where you uh, ask if the vaccine that you have created is able to be safe and also effective. And what we mean by that is inducing neutralising antibodies. So what does safety testing in particular involve? Because sometimes people are worried about the safety especially of a new vaccine um, how do you go about determining that it's okay to give to people that is a big part of my role and it's it's exceptionally important that safety is the first priority um, in the preclinical studies where we're testing it in in animals and there we're looking at, uh, at what's called toxicology understanding how this uh, the responses are in in the animals themselves and then when we're looking in in humans um, we ask very detailed questions so people fill in diaries we take blood tests we get people to come back uh, and it's very very heavily regulated to make make sure that those vaccines are going to be safe and not just safe but also well tolerated. Is there, um, can you just give us a, a sort of vaccine 101 and tell us very simply about how the vaccine works that you, that you guys are developing for COVID-19? In general what a vaccine does is it's, I, I think of it like a software program for, for the immune system. So it teaches the immune system how to respond to an infection before you've seen it. And the advantage that that uh, gives you is that when you then see the infection, if you come into contact with it, you've got a whole armoury of responses that protect you from it. The most important part of that response is usually something called a neutralising antibody. And uh, that is the way that many vaccines are designed um, to induce those neutralising antibodies, which stop the virus from entering uh, the cell. And they do that by um, uh, mimicking or actually being just a part of that pathogen then when that is inside the body, the body recognises it and develops those antibodies. And then those are ready and waiting for if you were to come into contact with, say, COVID-19. And how are they made on a big scale? So once you've determined its safety, how do you scale up for a mass vaccination programme? That's a key question and uh, something that's going to require a global effort to make that work. 
Um, what we have at the moment globally is a very successful and, and uh, usually effective yearly flu vaccine programme. Uh, and some of the machinery that's being used for that um, could potentially be adapted. But it would depend very much on which vaccine is taken forward and how it's being manufactured. But when you're talking about large scale manufacturing, you need uh, uh, big uh, factories that are able to do uh, vaccine production to medicines grade uh, quality. How do you choose? Um, you, you mentioned uh, finding the bit in the genome of the virus that you're making the vaccine to. How do you just decide which bit to use? You need to understand enough about how the virus is interacting with the cell to know which bits uh, of the virus to go for. So um, we're looking at uh, the prefusion confirmation of the spike protein. So the spike protein is how the virus gets into the cell. And what we want to do is introduce into the body an antibody that's able to stop the virus from doing that. And then you'll never get a productive infection. What it's called is reverse vaccinology. So you, you're able to understand that interaction and then you go a bit back and look at the gene sequences that help you to understand that interaction. Then you can pinpoint it in that way. And so famously with flu, bits get swapped around every year and we have to come up with a different vaccine every year. Are we hoping that this is going to be more stable? That is something that we need to, to study and uh, to keep monitoring over time. It's too early to say, because it's a new virus, how it's going to interact with its human host and especially on a large scale. And there are two components to that question. So one is if the if the virus itself were to change a lot over time, then that would require vaccine redesign, a bit like flu requires every year. And the other thing is how long you can induce immunity for. So some uh, vaccines induce lifelong immunity, and that's what we would hope for. That would be the best case scenario. But that's not always the case. And again, it can depend on exactly how the vaccine is designed. So I think you've given us a, a good idea of why this is not a quick fix and why um, President Trump has said he thinks we'll get a vaccine in the next couple of months, right? Um, and we're looking at much longer before we've got a vaccine up and running at scale. People want a vaccine and I I completely understand that because what that will do is, is protect people from infection. That's the goal of it. And it will completely change the, the balance away from the virus just being transmitted to people who have no immunity. So there's a real you know need for it and people want to accelerate that process. But you have to weigh that against those two key points about vaccine development. The first is safety and the second is efficacy. And that that's what takes the time. I've heard quite a lot of people saying that it might be possible to, out of um, six or however many strong candidates that are in development at the moment, one of those could be ready to go by the end of the year, hopefully. At that point, so many people will probably have had the virus. Um, what will we then use the vaccine to do? What will we be using it for? Yeah. That is where the, you know this. What we were talking about a little bit earlier about epidemiology and transmission will come into it, and, and again, it's going to be a multidisciplinary effort to understand that. Um, in this country, Public Health England would be very heavily involved, and we would need to know who we felt 
has immunity and and who doesn't and therefore how to use the vaccine. It does depend on how the epidemic spreads, how many people actually get infected and then how long that that immunity is going to last for. And there are different strategies um, that you can use to vaccinate. You don't necessarily just vaccinate everybody. You can use strategies such as ring vaccination, where you, for for example, um, vaccinate healthcare workers uh, who are most at risk and limit transmission. Or with flu, uh, what we do every year in this country is give the live attenuated vaccine to children and that helps to prevent onward transmission. And how much of a risk is there that by the time we're ready to start testing vaccines in people, loads of people might already have encountered the virus and be immune themselves? Is is there a bit of a race against time there? That would be a, a possible scenario, I think. We don't know how this is going to play out and uh, all scenarios need to be considered and we have to plan for that. And if that if that is the case, then clearly there would be many, many cases of infection. The role of the vaccine long term will be to prevent uh, new cases of infection. And the, the only time where I can really consider a vaccine wouldn't be needed at all would be if we were able to completely eradicate transmission like we had with SARS-CoV-1. And the way things are playing out at the moment, I think that's unlikely. And have you got any general advice for our listeners? One of the things that I think is really important is that this is going to be quite a long haul I think it's going to take a while before we have a vaccine and it's important that people don't exhaust themselves with anxiety and also try to maintain their resilience and also their compassion if we do see a lot of cases it will be very tough for those medics working with them for the patients and the families involved so you know I'd encourage people to really be as resilient as possible and also just to remember that it's important to be compassionate. Fantastic advice there. Thanks very much, Katrina Pollock from Imperial College London. Time out. Today's episode is sponsored by the Financial Times. We're living in a world of innovation and fragmentation. The FT identifies the stories that matter, like whether a green society can keep consuming and looking at which technological trends will shape the decade. It was fascinating to read in a recent article the different approaches to coronavirus testing being taken by Asian countries hit hardest by the outbreak goes into various methods like South Korea's mass testing approach, China's focus on the most severe cases and accusations that Japan isn't testing enough. Something completely different that caught my eye was a recent report on the $30 billion valuation of the self-driving car manufacturer Waymo. That sets it safely as one of the key players to watch in this market. And with many autonomous vehicle companies currently scaling back their offerings, it's really interesting to see how some Goliaths are emerging in this narrowing field. Keep up to date with the FT to find out more. The Financial Times is your trusted guide to the new normal. Join the debate at ft.com. That's our sci-fi alert, where we've written about something this week that's already been documented or predicted in science fiction. Rowan, what is it this week? Yeah, uh, this is about the nearest star system to us, Proxima Centauri, which is four light years away. Uh, That's still a long way away, uh, but it's got a planet around it called Proxima B, uh, which is our nearest cosmic neighbour. And a lot of people have wondered about the possibility of alien life on this planet. Now, Proxima Centauri is a small star, it's a red dwarf, but it's got a nasty habit of flaring up quite regularly. And people have thought that this 
could sterilise the surface of uh, Proxima b, uh, its, its nearby planet. So when we have solar flares from our sun, it does cause problems on Earth sometimes. But this is more extreme, and people have thought, well, that's not good for any life trying to evolve on Proxima b if, this, if its star is flaring out all the time. But now a new study has modelled the impact of stellar flares on the atmosphere of Proxima b, and they suggest it might be beneficial in terms of the planet's habitability. Yes, everyone was very excited when uh, we first discovered Proxima b a couple of years ago, but we quickly realised because of the nature of the star, the the variability, the flares, it, it just seemed that the atmosphere would be completely stripped away and that there'd be no chance for right. life. But, but this new study seems to be saying something different. Yeah, so these are German astronomers and they've modelled how the flares might interact with cosmic rays to alter the temperature of Proxima b and they found the combined effect could be beneficial in warming the planet. So that's good news for its potential habitability. Um, but obviously we're still a long, long way from ever being able to detect life on there. But, you know, it's still pretty good for those of us who speculate about alien life nearby. Uh, the sci-fi link. So there has been loads of sci-fi about Proxima, the Proxima Centauri system over the years. But I'm going to choose the three-body problem by uh, Chinese superstar author Lu Qixin. Um, this is the most epic and amazing book I've read in a long time. I urge everyone to read it. Jacob's already read it. Um, lots of us at New Sciences have read it. Um, it's awesome. Just go and read it. I'll also mention uh, Proxima by Stephen Baxter. And uh, when, when we um, when they, we actually discovered the planet, we commissioned a comment piece from Stephen Baxter saying how pleased he was that basically real life turned to be exactly as he predicted in terms of the properties of the planet. Our next story has Claire coming face to face with a fresh pig's liver. The things you do in the name of science journalism. <laughs> This is about a way to increase the number of organs that are available for transplant? Yes, so there are roughly 400 people in the UK currently waiting for a liver transplant. And in terms of all donor organs, sadly, several hundred people in the UK die each year while they're on the waiting list. Uh, So it's a big problem for all organs. And with liver transplants, what doctors are seeing more and more is that um, organs that are being offered for donation when somebody dies, they can't use because the liver is too fatty because we're all putting on weight. Um, as you probably know, Petty, we're all, you know, there is this obesity epidemic. What are you <laughs> Um, so since fatty livers don't work as well as a, a liver that's in good shape, they, they have to be rejected for use as transplant organs. So this is a way to improve the health of the liver after the donor has died. Exactly. And uh, I went to see a team at the University of Oxford who've developed a machine to try to, to defat the liver. Um, it's basically like a heart-lung machine, something that pumps blood around, oxygenated and warm to body temperature. And the liver can sit inside this machine perfectly happy for up to several days. And they use this now routinely when doing organ transplants because it extends the distance that the organ can be transported around the country. Now, the new thing that the Oxford researchers are trying to do is to put a liver on a crash diet for two days to try to get it to lose its fat. And the trick is to infuse the blood supply with chemicals that make the liver cells release fat, and then they physically filter this fat out of the blood. And these are chemicals that are actually sold as weight loss supplements. Mm. So the cool thing about this, which has only been done on pig livers so far, but will hopefully be tried on human livers later this year, is that this will be the first time that a human organ has been treated for a disease while outside of the body and then put back into somebody's Mm. body. So could I have my liver taken out, keep keep me on life support for a few days, get my liver 
in great state on a crash diet and then put it back in. Do you think it needs it? Um, <laughs> it might do. I actually had this exact same idea and I asked the researchers and um, the short answer is, well, kind of. So yes, in theory, that could happen, but it would never actually happen in practice because it wouldn't be judged to be worth the risks when you could achieve the same result by just going on a proper diet. Um, but it's funnily enough, they are actually looking to doing uh, something similar, but as a treatment for liver cancer. Because if you can isolate someone's liver from their body, you can deliver higher doses of chemotherapy that would otherwise cause side effects. So if you could um, basically connect the liver to this heart-lung machine, you could deliver your high doses of chemotherapy and then disconnect it. And the really cool thing is you don't even have to take it out of the person's body to do this. You just snip its normal blood vessels, hook it up to the machine, deliver your chemotherapy, and then sew it all back up to its normal blood supply again. But they do actually use this machine or similar versions of this machine for livers, hearts and kidneys and um, a few cases in lungs too. Because even if you don't try and deliver any funky medical treatments like trying to make it lose weight, just putting an organ on this kind of machine outside of the body for several hours makes the organ healthier. Because if you think about it, the last body that it was sitting in was very unhealthy. It was dying. It was in somebody in intensive care. And that's why they became an organ donor. So in that time, it would have been going short of oxygen and building up toxic metabolites. So just giving the organ a new, healthy, oxygenated blood supply um, for a few hours or even days, it just makes it perk up and it makes more organs usable. Could it also make it, uh, these sort of techniques make it easier to use things like gene or cell therapies one day to treat diseases of the organs? Yes, and that's another thing that is in very early stages of testing because if you could deliver um, some kind of gene or cell therapy that would make the organ less likely to spark an immune reaction, that would be excellent for the person that you're putting it into. In this week's Life Form of the Week, I want to introduce you to Oculodentivis, or the eye-tooth bird. This is a new species of bird-like dinosaur that has been identified from an amazing fossil. It's a tiny skull preserved inside a piece of 99 million-year-old amber. Although it's only the skull, we can tell quite a lot about it. It had bulging eyes with narrow eye sockets that would only have let in limited light, so that suggests that it was probably active in the day rather than the nighttime. It also had sharp teeth, and the jaw shape suggests it had quite a powerful bite, so it was probably a very ferocious insectivore despite its tiny size. Um, and it really is tiny, that's why it's so amazing. The skull is only 1.4 centimetres across. So this is smaller than uh, the smallest living bird today, the bee hummingbird, um, which is quite a surprise. So as well as being a beautiful fossil, and it is incredible, we'll post a picture on Twitter at New Scientist Pod. It's also intriguing from an evolutionary perspective. It's now really well established that today's birds are living dinosaurs and they're descended from a particular group of bird-like dinosaurs that evolved all the features we know today, uh, feathers and such like. But another shift that occurred was that these dinosaurs at some point got smaller and this new fossil is sort of prompting a bit of a rethink about maybe uh, the ancestors got smaller earlier in time than we thought and also earlier in that general process of evolving towards being birds. Um, sorry to be so obvious, but um, can we can we get DNA out of it like in Jurassic Park and clone it? 
So probably not DNA because that degrades so so much, and you know that, Rowan. <laughs> you had to ask it anyway. <laughs> um, but the team did say that they are hoping to develop techniques to maybe pull out tissues and analyse some of the material in the fossil. Uh, so there's uh, some good techniques coming through now where um, people are using proteins to maybe understand a bit more and and date animals. So that that might be a way to go. So is the brain still in there? Oh, I don't know. Actually, that's a good question. Mm, um, they could be able to scan it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so they. I know that they have done CT scans, so potentially um, that's something that could tell us quite a lot more. One thing to mention as an aside, uh, there's loads of incredible fossils coming out of Myanmar and they're teaching us loads about animal evolution like Penny's been telling us, um, but the amber trade has been linked to some very serious environmental and human rights abuses and new scientists ran a big expose on this last year. Uh, we'll tweet a link about that as well. Now Jacob's going to tell us about a mysterious subatomic particle called the neutrino. These are ghostly particles that, when you talk about them, you're mandated officially to call them ghostly particles. Uh, the other thing about them that you have to mention is that 100 trillion just passed through my thumbnail. You always have to... It's always the thumbnail. It's always the thumbnail. It's, it's, it's about a centimetre square. Oh, that's why. Which is a, an easy-to-convert unit. So what's going on with them, Jake? So, yeah, neutrinos don't actually particularly interact with any other particles at all. Um, so we, we find it difficult to detect them. That's where the, the ghost name comes from. And they're similar to uh, electrons, except they're neutrally charged hence the name neutrinos. And the news this week is that uh, these non-interacting particles might have actually had a big influence back in the early days of the universe. So very early on, a few thousand years after the Big Bang, which I I find quite a weird concept to get my head around, a universe just a a few thousand years old. This is a a period when there's no stars or galaxies, but the, the energy from the Big Bang is starting to cool down and there are subatomic particles like the neutrinos around and clumps of matter, um, mostly hydrogen and helium. Now, a new analysis of the structure of the early universe suggests that the movement of neutrinos back then affected how matter would eventually clump into the universe we see today. Right, so they were whizzing around and they somehow dragged the matter that was in the early universe into ripples. Exactly. So the, the neutrinos have a, a tiny, tiny gravitational effect, but across the, the entire universe, this seems to have been enough to drag the matter around that that existed then and put it into where it would eventually form into the stars and galaxies that we see So today. something very small can have a big difference. Exactly. It, so it, it has influenced the outcome of the, the shape of the universe? Well, it has influenced what we've ended up with today, but if things had been different, we'd probably end up with a universe that looked sort of broadly similar in the end. Do you know that John Updike wrote a poem? Does anyone know this? He wrote an, um, a poem about neutrinos? No. <laughs> OK, well, I'm going to tell you the first line of it. It's called Cosmic Gall. first line is, Neutrinos, they are very small, they have no charge and no mass, and they do not interact at all. <laughs> it's a good poem. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder that you can read all about these stories and much more at newscientist.com. If you'd like to subscribe, there is a special offer for podcast listeners only. Get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Yep, just enter POD20 at checkout and get your subscription discount. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at NewScientistPod and please email us at podcasts at NewScientist.com. Tell your friends all about the show if you like it and let us know your thoughts. New episodes go live each Friday. Do subscribe to our show at the usual place that you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. 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 Goodbye.
This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 